This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Welcome to this week's episode of the Friday Morning Break with John Gibbs here on Teachers Talk Radio. My guest this week, Dr. Caroline Horton, a bishop, Rostest University. As well as being a professor at the university, Caroline is a researcher in the science of sleep and dreaming and the role it plays in our health, our cognition, our memory and learning. I think you'll enjoy our discussion. This is Teachers Talk Radio and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. And we're back with my guest, Professor Caroline Horton from Bishop Grosteste University in the wonderful town of Lincoln. And as I said in my introduction, also the director of the Dream Lab, which is the rather wonderful sounding and fascinating area of research, which I think is, is going to be uh, quite relevant. I'd like to get on to things like, uh, of course, fascination of dreams and so on, but talking about memory and cognition and so on, all the areas that dreams go into. Because I would imagine, I'm just guessing for a moment, that when people hear what you do, they want to tell you about a dream they've had and ask you what it means. Yes, we get that all the time. And because I'm a psychologist as well, people often say, oh, you must know what I'm thinking. Um, I don't, and I, I don't know what people are dreaming, but I do always love to hear about them. And I yes. consider myself pretty fortunate to uh, to work in the world of dreams. I've got a pretty cool job, I think. Well, it's interesting that, the, that the, we all find dreams quite fascinating. When you wake up, you want to tell people about them. And I'm guessing that science, that that the well, my first question in a way is how do how do you research dreams? I'm imagining lots of sleeping people. I'm imagining brain scans and so on. But how does one go about researching dreams? Yeah, there's there's different ways that it's done, and I can tell you about the way that we do it. And uh, in general, we try to take a really scientific approach. So uh, at the moment, there's still no sophisticated enough brain scan to tell us what we're really dreaming or, or seeing or feeling or thinking when we're asleep, we've got to still ask people. Um, and, and brain scans are becoming more sophisticated, but I don't know if we'll ever get to that point of really mm. knowing exactly about the complexity of someone's experience. Um, but we still try to ask people in a scientific way. So yes, they're asleep and yes, we wake them up systematically. And yes, we try and work out what sleep stage they were in when they were dreaming certain things. Um, but ultimately, we, we still need to rely on people to um, talk to us very openly and thankfully people are open they tell us all sorts and that's really very useful for us <laughs> and are, are you using volunteers or colleagues or are there yeah um, queu- queuing up to say i'd like a nice sleep this afternoon and tell you well and i mean <laughs> actually yes we're probably reasonably fortunate in that people usually are quite willing to take part in our experiments. Um, Pre-pandemic, we'd get people into the lab and we'd wake them up systematically. Um, Whereas now, post-pandemic, I mean, we we started having to do things a bit differently. Um, We couldn't bring people into the lab and stick electrodes on their heads for obvious reasons. Um, And we've just adapted and and we let people sleep at home um, and, and we send them home with alarm clocks and little gizmos that will tell us what sleep stage they're in from afar. And, and that's great. I mean, it's good for us because we don't need to stay awake all night, which is quite helpful. And it means people can sleep in a more naturalistic setting. One thing we do know is when we pe- bring people into the lab, they will dream of the lab. And uh, it, it's fascinating, but highly unrealistic. So yeah. <laughs> um, people, people sleep at home. And, uh, and as a result, we've also moved on to emphasizing how important sleep is which sounds really obvious but you know studying dreams makes you realize that you've got to sleep to dream and a lot of people are not sleeping enough so one major arm of our work is about sleeping healthily well i don't know when i first heard the term which i think is a real term sleep sleep hygiene which they they didn't mean like you know cleaning your sheets or something it meant (laughs) it meant something like sleeping properly sleeping long enough in a darkened room and all this sort of thing and uh, routine before you go to sleep. Would I be right in saying that we've taken sleep for granted in a way that for, for generations? It was just the, it was just resting. And now yeah. we're beginning to realise it's a lot more than that. 
Yeah, I think that's a great summary um, for both of those reasons. One, because sleep is more than just switching off or some people say we're unconscious. We're not. Uh, we're really active. But also I think we've taken it for granted because we live in a world of 24-7 connectivity and access to information and we're overwhelmed and bombarded with information and demands and we're working remotely and, you know, there are so many pulls on our time and resources that something's got to give and, and sleep is giving and we're paying the price for it. So I, I think your summary is exactly right. We've got to work really hard to prioritise sleep now. Sleep hygiene, it, it, it's a term we don't use actually, but because um, it, it, it has kind of clinical clean sheets connotations that it, yes. it emerged yes. from a clinical background. Um, and we just want to talk about healthy sleep because we can all improve our sleep. Uh, I don't mean to get preachy, but you know everyone can. And we see these shocking statistics about how one in three people have got insomnia. And you know, it, is it a disorder or is it just a bad habit? It, it doesn't matter. It, you know, we, we just want to try and help people to sleep better and feel better as a result. Yes, and of course, very relevant. I don't know if it's come up in your research. How sleep patterns change during our lifespan? I mean. Mm. I, uh, I think I know that older people sleep less and younger people want to sleep more and so on. I remember years ago, a student, for some reason, he was trying to show me something on the internet. He said, oh, this is, uh, this is a game I play. And it showed the last time he'd logged on, which was something like three in the morning that morning. <laughs> so that, oh, you, you were playing this game at three this morning. Yeah. Yes. Yes, I was. Yeah. yeah and, and I think that harks back to that point about how we've got so many demands on our time that if we have a slightly disrupted sleep schedule, technology can really exacerbate that. So, you know, if you wake up at three in the morning, as adults often do, um, what you don't want to be doing is rolling over and checking your phone. And yet many people do. Um, So, yeah, how does sleep change over the lifespan then? I mean, you're right, it really does. And uh, not just in terms of the amount of time we sleep, which generally declines steadily after childhood, it doesn't change that much in older adults relative to younger adults. Lots of people say, oh, you don't need as much sleep when you're older. The, mm. You know, you, you do still need to sleep and sleep healthily. But we do see some shifts in the proportion of different sleep stages over the lifespan. So mm. infants really prioritise their rapid eye movement sleep. And um, adults tend to have rapid eye movement sleep later in their sleep, you know, night of sleep. And, and they have it for about a quarter of their sleep. Um, the other main change is teenagers. They have this circadian shift and uh, it's often kind of associated with laziness, teenagers being teenagers and not wanting to get out of bed. But it's a true physiological shift um, that is really hard for them and, and lasts until they're about 21. I mean, we see it in our university students in their final yes. year of study. They go back to a kind of normal, healthy adult and ready to work at 9am kind of routine prior to that they really struggle with an early morning lecture that's not anything to do with laziness that's because very naturally they want to sleep later and they want to get up later interesting so the so the circadian shift all that that adolescent sleep longer i know schools have experimented with students starting later and it's been quite successful yeah but we, yeah. we persist with the idea effectively that get to schools students start about eight o'clock in the morning nine o'clock in the morning and that's what we do, and that's the you know that's how it fits in with the working week and with parents and so on. That's it. And yet, that's not really the best idea at all. No, and and you're right. A few um, schools have tried moving things later, and and where I believe it was first introduced in the states, it, it certainly was introduced in one U.S. state. Um, the school start was originally at 7.30am so really early and they moved it to 8.30am and there was about a you know a 10% increase in the grades average uh, after implementing this which is a phenomenal academic impact but there was also a really significant reduction in road traffic accidents in the morning because these kids who were driving to school usually were not driving tired and it was an unexpected benefit but it really hits home you know that the really yes the, the nature of um operating when you're tired um in fact just this week um there's been some coverage in in a province in china they've been installing these lasers above the motorways um at night to try and keep people awake um or or to try to prevent people from falling asleep at the wheel and you just think oh my goodness it's scary it's it's really scary that we've resorted to this um absolutely yeah and since since people under 25 are the most likely to have road accidents and so on and Younger yeah. people even more so, and inexperienced drivers compound that with being tired. That's fascinating. 
Are you looking for lesson planning materials to kickstart the new term? We've got you covered. The Day is a global online resource that turns the news into lessons. We're offering listeners a free resource on Andrew Tate that you can find on thedaynews.co forward slash Tate. Inspire personal development and critical thinking for your students by downloading the Tate Debate today and feel more confident addressing sensitive topics with your class. Visit thedaynews.co forward slash Tate to find out more. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. In today's educational environment, students and teachers are juggling a mix of face-to-face, -face, online and blended learning courses. Canvas by Instructure helps teachers navigate these diverse learning experiences with a user-friendly virtual learning environment that offers flexible access to courses and a consistent learning experience, all while streamlining everyday teaching processes. The world's best schools and universities are using Canvas to create dynamic courses, collaborate seamlessly, and access actionable data that drives student success. You're listening to the Friday Morning Break with John Gibbs. My guest this week, Dr. Caroline Horton of Bishop Grostest University in Lincoln. Caroline is an expert in sleep science, and we are discussing sleep and the importance of dreaming for learning, cognition and health. So one of the things that looking at some of the things you've written and some of the research I've, I've read of yours, I would have said a couple of years ago, oh, you don't dream. You dream. You dream. We know can tell when people are dreaming because their eyes are flicking around. It's called rapid eye movement. I sort of, sort of knew that. But that's actually we dream throughout the night, but we dream differently. That's right. That's exactly right. I didn't know. Yeah. And it's still... Um frustrates me that in some core kind of biology textbooks we see this association between dreaming and rapid eye movement sleep um but dreaming is more than rapid eye movement sleep and, and likewise you can be awoken from rapid eye movement sleep and not recall a dream so the two co-occur but not exclusively um so i tend to think of dreams as anything that you can remember from your thoughts when you were asleep and if we take that kind of nice broad definition um, we can wake people up across the night and just say what were you thinking um, before I woke you up and sometimes we get these very typical dreamlike bizarre narratives and stories and tales of all sorts going on often highly emotional sometimes we just get briefer things that are just sensations or feelings you know I just I felt like I was in a white room and there was a presence with me and you know to me that's still telling us something about the nature of our mental state um when we're asleep there's always something in our heads even if it feels like there isn't um which reinforces the idea you made earlier that you know sleep is is active you know we're not switching off uh, our, our brains are certainly processing memories processing emotions sorting mm. through the things that are important to us and when someone's recounting a dream to you you used the term there a moment ago um typical dream so you, you, you someone says well i was I was walking to work and I realised I wasn't wearing my trousers or something. You know, that's yep, that sort of yep. anxiety sort of thing. Um, so, is there? A, do you categorise them and say, "Well, that's a, that"? There's a sort of scale of ways in which I can understand dreams in more more narrative dreams of ordinary life, and then really extraordinary sorts of dreams. Mm. You know, well, yeah, I don't know where that, that came from. 
That's a great question. There are different ways that we can scale them, but I, I think there's many different dimensions that we can use. And um, one broad thing that we're interested in is something called continuity. Um, and, right. and continuity refers to how like your waking life your dream is. Um, but even then, dreams are often made up of lots of individual features that are continuous with our waking life but the whole of the dream isn't so um it would be quite ordinary i often give this example but um we may dream of being in the school that we went to when we were 10 11 years old um we were talking to someone that we watched on netflix last night and yet we were wearing the clothes that we wore yesterday so each of those individual elements are continuous and yet put them all together and it's highly bizarre or, or it's highly improbable that that's going to happen in waking life. So um, that's something that we're quite interested in. It's, it's the way that our dreams are fragmented and then recombined. And it's that recombination that often yields the bizarreness, the bit that makes us go, gosh, that's a bit weird. What on earth did I dream mm. of that person for? And yet, even though it may be odd that you dream of that person, you're still doing very normal everyday stuff. Uh, so it's just that combination that creates bizarreness. Yes, that fascinating thing where you say, well, I was dreaming last night of my parents who have been dead all these years. <laughs> and yet there yeah. they were, they were speaking to me and they're in the garden in our house now, which they never visited and so on. Yeah. So yeah. when you hear a thing like that, you say, well, I, I, that's a feature of dreams, that, that curious combination of past and present. How do you then say, well, let's hypothesize about what's going on here? What's the purpose? Of, what is my brain doing? And why? Yeah. I suppose that's the big question in this sense, isn't it? You know, what, why are we doing this at night? What's our brain doing? Yeah, I, I don't know the answer to that yet. Um, but I, I don't think there's one answer. Um, and yeah. and it, people often think there should be. There's one function of dreaming. Well, it could be that yeah. there are many. Um, you know, we spend a substantive proportion of our lives asleep uh, and of that dreaming, presumably. Um, so I don't think we would be investing energy in it if it didn't have a function and a use having said that we don't remember many of our dreams so maybe mm. we don't need to remember them we just need to create the right conditions through sleeping healthily to let our minds go and wander and, and you know experience these alternative scenarios as the brain sorting mm. through the memories um so it, one way one way that we look at it or that I look at it in the lab is by breaking down these sleep components into the bits we can make sense of and the bits that we can't as I said these continuous features and I would age rate each of them and and you know we can see some patterns we can see things like um the setting the place where we are in our dreams often comes from longer ago in our memories than the things that we're doing and the emotional tone is usually very current so we start building up this pattern that's somewhat predictable and, and we can use those patterns then to yield further hypotheses um, and, and in all cases I think dreams are our memories and, and you mentioned dreaming of your parents who may have passed away well they're they're in your memory um, and our dream mm. life is not our waking life and it's not the real world that doesn't mean it, it's not a manifestation of what we're thinking of or what we're processing and what is important to us. And that, I think, again, I think that's something I've read, read that you've written, is that we may be uh, dealing with stress and emotional, uh, contemporary stress, the stress that day. So you're you stressed at work or you're concerned about something now and the dream manifests as something similar in the past. Like you're sitting in, the, you know, that one where you're sitting in the exam room or you're, you're suddenly yeah. thrust out on stage and you can't remember the lines. Yes. Um, as it, and that, that really isn't about that. That was a thing that may have occurred or was some construction of what occurred in the past. But it's really about what's happening right now. Yeah, so yeah. We, we think so. You've described that beautifully. Um, yeah, and we, we sometimes tentatively say that maybe there's a metaphorical link between the way we're feeling at the moment and mm. what's manifest in our, our dreams. But I say that cautiously because... I'm more of a literal person and I don't want to go into the dangerous territory of analysing dreams or saying, oh, you know, th this dream meant such and such. We don't want to go into that that art of interpretation because I, I, I don't think there's a universal language that one can, can use. I don't even know if dreams are meaningful or ready to be interpreted. But again, we, we can see some patterns in kind of how literally things from our waking lives are represented in dreams and how metaphorically they're represented so people who have experienced a severe trauma 
and who have post-traumatic stress disorder tend to dream really literally they have a flashback in the day and night um, of their trauma and when it appears in at night that's a nightmare that wakes them up and it's really distressing it interrupts their sleep that they really need to help process the emotion so they're caught in this really troublesome loop as that that trauma is processed and integrated into the memory and the the dreams and the processing of that whole experience, it becomes less literal and is represented slightly more metaphorically. So, so we think that kind of process is an adaptive one, mm. um, but for some experiences that are really emotional, it takes more time than others. It's interesting because I remember it's only recently I was talking to someone and I said, I said oh, I've, I've had a dream persistent dream that I've, I've just retired. I retired just at the end, uh, two years ago. And uh, I've, I have a dream. I'm at work and I'm telling people I'm retiring. <laughs> and they're not, then a few weeks later, I'll have a dream again. I was at work and I'm saying to people, actually, I'm, well, I'm here because I'm, I'm retired now. And someone used that phrase. They said, oh, you're, you're, process- you're still processing that change then. Wow. I thought, well, okay. Yeah. But what does that mean? Is it, does it mean I'm worried about that? Or, or that as time goes by, that dream will diminish? And I mm. said, well, I've, process that but what do I mean what do I mean by processing what does that mean well it can mean different things um uh so making sense of it um on a conscious level but also Mm. maybe updating some of your prior experiences and schema or views so you know if you worked for the majority of your life and then suddenly that's not part of your identity then it it doesn't mean necessarily that it's traumatic or it's emotional but you know maybe there's just quite a lot of your experiences that kind of need to be updated to accommodate this new view of yourself so um the processing may be that you're um just updating some of your older experiences and um your, your older memories just to make sure that this new this new self um, is assimilated into the previous version. So it's all correct and updated. Well, I know we talked a little bit about this the other day. We briefly talked is that one of the difficulties in uh, researching dreams must be that people don't remember them. And I wonder why we don't remember them. And I mean, I think you said something about when you wake up, they tend to get pushed aside. Yeah. Um yeah, my original interest in dreams came from studying dream memory, you know, how well or how poorly more like we can access a dream memory. Um, and and there are two kind of main inter- interesting effects, I think. One is that a, a lot of the time we don't remember our dreams and yet we still seem to function fine. So sometimes people say, well, does that mean we need to dream at all? And I would say, well, yes. I mean, just because something's happening and we don't remember it doesn't mean that it doesn't need to happen. But, but the other interesting effect is that there are really huge individual differences or great variances um, between people and how easily they remember their dreams. So some really common effects like men typically don't remember their dreams as well as women. Um, stress influences how well you remember your dreams. Some people with certain personality types remember their dreams much more than others. The biggest thing that predicts whether you remember a dream or not is if you want to and if you're interested in doing it. So, you know, that in- indicates that maybe there's some some people are more likely to remember something, but whether that's accurate or not is another question. And and one of my papers showed that there's a relationship between remembering your dreams and what's called confabulation, which is the tendency to make stuff up. <laughs> so this makes it extra hard for us to try and, um, you know, really rely on the things that people are saying. But nevertheless, when we wake people up systematically and they are sleepy in the night and relaxed, they tend to just talking to a dictaphone and the next morning have no memory of it uh, and we don't have reason to believe that they would have kind of energy at that time let alone inclination to make something up. <laughs> um, well, but in a therapeutic context if someone keeps saying yeah. come on remember a dream from many years ago I, I have real concerns about the validity of asking people about an experience dream or or wake or anything if it's from a long time ago especially if there's a motivation to or or a kind of leading question around it and someone really wanting you to say something that's open to manipulation and that does say so many interesting things about about memory generally isn't it i mean we Mm. you know that we don't when we remember things we remember remembering that thing and each time we remember it we sort of you know tidy it up Absolutely. so if someone says to you well did you dream last night and you think well this is a little nonsense i can't so you just sort of tidy it up a little bit and say Absolutely. well uh, that's, you know. 
And if we tell someone, then as you say, we're going to make it more amenable to being told. You know, we'll we'll just elaborate, even if we don't mean to. And exactly as you say, we then remember what we've told someone because the original memory, especially for a dream, is really hard to access. Um, and there's this issue of, uh, you know, when you're in a sleepy state, that's a very different context uh, to remembering something in a highly alert, focused wakeful state and we Mm. know from other memory work that if you overlap the conditions between the time something happened and recalling it then you're better able to access the memory for that original experience but we can't just go back to being in our bed in a really sleepy physiological state all the time if we want to remember a dream and the best way that we can remember a dream though is to stay in bed and you know, voice record on your phone straight away or speak into a dictaphone or write it down if you want to while it's fresh and just reduce that time lag in between it happening and talking about it. Um, and, and that's kind of the best way that we've got to work with them at the moment. Mm. Is one of the reasons I can understand why when remembering anything, we know the you know, teachers will tell students, well, you know, you've got to repeat this. You're to mm. re- revisit it. And this called, we'll call this revision. You know, yeah. and where you're going to learn things and learn things by trying to force them in from your short-term memory. You just read it into your longer-term memory. Now you know it kind of thing. Yeah. So is it is it possible? That, well, one of the ways we'll do that to students is we'll say, try and do something, physic, physic, physicalize the, the memory. You know, so you're yeah. reading something in a book. Don't just read it, highlight it. Don't just highlight it, copy it out, whatever. That, that then enforces the possibility of learning it. Maybe dreams, because they, they are so ephemeral. They don't have mm. any physicality. I mean, you might wake up frightened and a bit sweating or something. It was a nightmare. But essentially, they exist purely in the mind. So there's no taste, touch, smell-ish sort of reinforcement. Yeah. But if you then introduce that yeah. by writing it down, maybe then then, then it I'm babbling a bit here, but maybe no, you're is. not. You're making a lot of sense, and, <laughs> and, and what why. you're saying aligns with you know memory theory. And, and there's um, there's this uh, area of memory called reality monitoring, which is our ability to work out whether something really happened or whether essentially it was conceived of as a thought, um, like a dream would be. And um, there's lots of distinguishing features between something that really happened and something that you made up or imagined, we should say. Um, And one of those things is the lack of sensory perceptual information. So Mm. dreams can be emotional, but there's also a a lot of detail that we just don't create because there's probably no need to you know if you try and think of all the details of the facial features of people in a dream they're usually blurred rather than really detailed and and it's probably because the focus of that dream doesn't need to create all of that information there will be a focus elsewhere but you're still asleep (laughs) your mind can only create so much um so why then why then would we not remember them well again maybe we don't need to um maybe it's it's important that we don't remember when we were when we walked into work without the trousers on or, you know, when something else happened that hopefully yeah. wouldn't be healthy to confuse with a real memory. <laughs> um, so maybe it's actually functional yes. to forget those experiences, even though it may leave you with a lingering sense of, well, now I'm motivated to sort that out or actually I'm worried about that upcoming doctor's appointment. I'm going to make sure that I get it in the diary. You know, so it can leave you with a change in behaviour, even if you're not sure of the details of the original dream memory itself. That's interesting because, it, I mean, it's all very interesting, but if the if the sense in which you remembered them very, very easily, they stuck in your mind, then they would start to become actual memories. So, you yes. know, that experience, you know, I don't know if people sometimes say it as a joke, but did I do that or did I dream that, you know? Yeah. Um, when you have a very, very sort of prosaic sort of dream of everyday life, and you think, well, don't really dream that. But that would be the yeah. case always if dreams did enter your memory too easily. They might yeah. become confused with reality. Exactly, exactly. And and in waking life, when we get confused about things, there are some things that we think, was, did I do that or did I imagine it? Yes. Those yes. things tend to be things that um, are things we do regularly and things that may be important to survival. So did I turn the cooker off? Uh, did I lock the door? Um, it's another one actually less important to survival, but did I put my deodorant on today? So these are things yeah. that people do every day. And so they have yes. repeated kind of schema memories for them um, rather than something unique. Our dreams are different because they probably are unique, but we don't have all of that rich detail that make them 
really highly distinguishable from something else. And that, that's just because we don't remember so much of them. But again, I, I, I'm not worried about that. I think that's a feature that's worthy of study uh, rather than necessarily mm. saying we must remember them more. Let's, let's look at the incidence of forgetting and why and, and assume that there's something useful in that. Useful in forgetting. So, mm. so yes, because yeah. there there's a very rare condition I remember think, uh, hearing about once, of people who, who remember almost too much, they recall every moment of their conscious life, and this is not at all good. <laughs> in yeah. fact, forget, forget. Now, one of the purposes of sleep, I've, I've heard, this may not be true, <laughs> is, that, is to essentially regulate your memory. So those things can be put into long-term, long-term storage, those things can yeah. be uh, reinforced or mulled over. So we're regulating memory as we sleep yeah. and giving us that experience where you go to sleep having had an argument with someone and you wake up in the morning, can't think what the argument was about and you say, oh, I'm so sorry, yes. why, why were we so annoyed about that? It's, yes, it's as if absolutely. you've not only processed it, but you've also stored it away. It doesn't, yeah. it doesn't seem at all so keen as a, as a thing. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you've referenced two related functions of sleep. Um, one is memory consolidation. So uh, that has kind of two parts in itself. That's the retention of, of salient features of, of something that we need to remember. And it's also uh, about sorting out the stuff that we don't need to remember. Um, the, the second related bit is about emotion regulation. Now, that, that may be that we need to sort through our emotional memories, but it may also be that we just are extremely aroused or extremely stressed. And when we sleep, particularly during rapid eye movement sleep, the emotion are associated with an event is kind of ameliorated over time. And if we don't have sufficient sleep, if our sleep is disturbed, or if we don't get the opportunity for decent REM, rapid eye movement sleep, then we don't experience those benefits. Um, and it's not just that our emotions are diminished. Actually, when we go to sleep, our emotions are really heightened. So it's almost like we go to sleep. Maybe this plays out during dreams, but we have real spikes in fear, in anger. You know, we have really emotional experiences. And it's like, it's almost like we've exercised those um, such that when we wake up, the mind, the, the argument with the spouse um, is, it sort of pales into comparison. Uh, so you have a reference point. Um, so that regulation process certainly benefits from sleep, rapid eye movement, sleep in particular. Maybe dreams are the way that we can, you know, simulate some of these emotional experiences it's a bit of practice bit of bit of emotional exercise it's almost as if we've evolved to have our own internal therapy <laughs> so process so instead of lying on a couch we go to sleep and our brain says what let's just have another go at that or think about that or you know, yeah literally literally replay that and as you said process it so yeah. that that leads me to think well what happens to people this is probably unethical to deprive people of sleep <laughs> but what happens to people when they don't sleep enough yeah are... that's a great question and there's two ways that that's been researched there are sleep deprivation studies but they tend to look at um just a short term one or two nights of sleep deprivation ethically um mm -hmm. because it wouldn't be right to deprive people of any more than that and um, the other way it's looked at are uh, um by studying people who uh, who have poor sleep in their natural lives for whatever reason. Um, and in both cases, um, emotion regulation is impaired, phenomenally impaired. So we, I, I mentioned that a lot of this emotion regulation occurs during rapid eye movement sleep. Actually, there's been some recent evidence that shows that your deeper stages of sleep, non-rapid eye movement sleep stages, contribute to emotion processing, particularly in terms of reducing anxiety as well. Uh, mm. To be honest, I'm not a big fan of separating sleep into these discrete stages. We know that okay. the brain transfers through different stages in a predictable fashion as we are asleep across the night. But we need all of these different stages. We need we need the benefits from all of them. So, mm. you know, if we just say, yeah, REM is really good for our emotion processing, then people might think, okay, if I was really selective, then I, I don't need the deep sleep tonight and I can just somehow, you know, go to sleep a bit later and have more REM. That's not the case. You know, we, we are basic beasts in, in many respects who still need this downtime. We, we do. And if we don't have it, we get physically ill as well as emotionally ill. Uh, and when sleep is impaired um, chronically, then, you know, severe mental illness ensues. 
um, severe mental illness uh, in every way and, and almost any mental illness that you can think of, whether it's an emotional disorder like depression or anxiety or whether it's something uh, like uh, psychosis or schizophrenia, all of them are associated with disturbed sleep. So, you know, it, yeah. it's it's a concern and it just shows how, how crucially important sleep is. Really? So, so what are the stages? They may not happen in a sort of absolutely predictable way, but what, yeah. what goes on at night, as it were, <laughs> while you're asleep in terms of the stages of sleep and different kinds of sleep? Yeah, so when you first go to sleep, um, the body is tired, which sounds really obvious, but there is a drive, kind of a homeostatic drive towards restoration, cell repair, um, a bit of inflammation in a healthy way and, and immune repair. So that's prioritized with your non-REM sleep stages initially. And we can feel how deep asleep we are when we first go to sleep. So if we are lucky enough to sleep for seven and a half-ish hours a night, which is a little bit of a luxury, but you know, a perfect typical night would contain about five 90-minute cycles. It takes about 90 minutes to transition through all of our different sleep stages. And the first three-ish of those cycles, two to three, will feature more of those deeper stages of sleep than the lighter stages of sleep. So when we go to sleep, we, we quickly transition through N1, which is really just when we're falling asleep, to N2. The N means non-rapid eye movement, non-REM, um, which is characterized by a certain kind of profile of brain activity. And then we go into N3, which is just that deep stage. So if you were to if you were to sleep in N3 and I tried to wake you up, you would not be happy with me. That's the stage where we want to get back to sleep. Our body needs that for essential repair and to overcome the feelings of fatigue. After that, we kind of transition up through the stages again and we have a little bit of REM. Then we go into the next 90-minute cycle. As we transition through these cycles across the night, we have more REM towards the end and less of the deep sleep, such that our latter two-ish cycles, 90-minute cycles, may have very little, if any, N3, which is the deepest stage, and much more REM. And when, when we said that REM is often the stage that is easiest to recall dreams from, this makes sense that um, when we recall dreams, we're normally waking up from REM. Uh, we're more typically awake than asleep, which sounds a little bit counterintuitive, but REM is also known as paradoxical sleep. And that's because brain activity wise, it's like we're awake. It's really similar um, with the exception of being, uh, there's a lot of activity in the emotion regions of the brain, particularly fear. And that, that, you know, links back to what we were saying about emotion processing and emotion regulation, and emotional exercise. Um, so mm -hmm. all sleep is not the same. It's reasonably predictable, but there are times when it's easier to wake up in the night than others. So after, at the end of a little 90-minute cycle, just had a bout of REM, we'll probably have a very brief awakening. Hopefully, we'll go back to sleep again. If you don't, yes. don't pick up your phone because it's going to be harder <laughs> to get back into the deep stages again later. Interesting. Yeah. So it does sound to me like you're describing a kind of package, almost like, you know, you said seven and a half hours or eight hours mm -hmm. or six hours, something that you need a lengthy period of sleep to, to, do, to do all that stuff that stuff that, yeah. that um the kind of i you know people say mrs thatcher famously said she only slept <laughs> two hours or three hours a night for years yeah. and then she never slept <laughs> I think, well that, that can't have been good and they explain a lot but or teenagers some people say well I, you know I, I like i like to sleep at three in the morning get up and then have a nap in the day well, that, yeah is that doesn't sound from what you're saying it's a very good idea no, you're absolutely right. It's, it, it's not ideal. And there's some evidence, slightly dubious evidence, that some cultures historically have slept with these kind of biphasic sleep patterns. You know, they kind of had the first four hours, which prioritise the deep sleep in one phase, and then the, the REM-heavy period later. It doesn't seem to work. You know, in the, in the majority of cases, um, humans tend to sleep at night because it's safe to take yourself away maybe when it's dark and um you know our, our bodies every every single cell in our bodies is geared towards this circadian rhythm of shying away at night in the dark and needing to be alert in response to sunlight in the morning electricity's messed with that <laughs> electric light has really created havoc in terms of that circadian system um but but yes thinking of sleep as a package it's a really healthy way of doing it and not being too strategic about it. Our, our bodies know what the body needs. And if you're tired, go to sleep. Um, however, if you're tired because you only slept for two hours last night, if you catch up with a really long nap in the middle of the day, you're not going to want to go to sleep again the next night. So it's worth consolidating the sleep 
at the right times. You know, we do sleep better when we go to bed at 10 p.m. rather than midnight um, because of that shift of the sunlight you know if we're sleeping when it's bright outside as some shift workers do of course is it actually that can create some long-term health troubles as well are you looking for lesson planning materials to kickstart the new term we've got you covered the Day is a global online resource that turns the news into lessons. We're offering listeners a free resource on Andrew Tate that you can find on thedaynews.co forward slash Tate. Inspire personal development and critical thinking for your students by downloading the Tate Debate today and feel more confident addressing sensitive topics with your class. Visit thedaynews.co forward slash Tate to find out more. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. In today's educational environment, students and teachers are juggling a mix of face-to-face, online and blended learning courses. Canvas by Instructure helps teachers navigate these diverse learning experiences with a user-friendly virtual learning environment that offers flexible access to courses and a consistent learning experience, all while streamlining everyday teaching processes. The world's best schools and universities are using Canvas to create dynamic courses, collaborate seamlessly, and access actionable data that drives student success. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. We have previously reported on the issue of student accommodation, focusing on rising costs and declining quality of places to rent. Shortages of suitable housing have further added to problems for many. This week, the BBC featured reports of protests by some students at what they describe as appalling conditions and extortionate rents at a university-owned block of flats near the University of Northampton. According to the report, residents paid £153 a week for a single ensuite room, but there were complaints of a lack of running water. A university spokesman said it had no record of complaints. However, a spokesperson for the student group said the complaints were repeated year after year. The university further said that the rent issue had been resolved as students had paid an additional charge caused by an admin error. This has now been refunded. An apology has also been issued. Staying with higher education, BBC Newsnight reports on the rise of anti-Semitism at UK universities. The Union of Jewish Students said the spike was nothing like anything seen before. The report comes at a time when experts have also warned of rising reports of Islamophobic incidents. Groups who monitor hate crimes in the UK say the conflict is now being played out on university campuses nationwide. The government has provided £43 million to protect interfaith communities and said perpetrators of hate crime would face the full force of the law. The Guardian featured a report that schools in England are using Airbnb-style strategies to raise funds. The article says many are renting out every available space from classrooms to canteens. Renting out spaces for community use is not new, but there has been an increase in the innovative use of spaces. One primary school says it has rented out its light-filled white corridor for photo shoots whilst another offers a stationary double-decker bus, used as a classroom, to those who might want to make quirky films. Dedicated online platforms are helping schools make the most of their spaces beyond the obvious playing fields and main halls, with the founder of the Sharesy website saying they have even helped schools rent out their car parks for puppy training lessons. The line between education and commercialism is becoming increasingly blurred, as school leaders attempt to close the funding gap especially after a government said 
It had miscalculated funding announced in July, slashing £370 million from the announced budget. Schools Week feature issues being faced by specialist settings in the North East, as the area, like many others, sees significant increases in the numbers of children and young people with additional needs. This is in addition to an already large backlog of those needing additional support. The piece by Chris Zaraga, Director of Schools North East, describes a system that, by the halfway point of the autumn term, is already at capacity. Specialist and alternative provisions are struggling to cope. While Saraga accepts that this is a national problem, he points out that it is particularly bad in the northeast, as in the 10-year period between 2012 and 2022, there was a 145.43% increase in the number of pupils with an EHCP being suspended from schools. He also argues that the solution cannot simply be more or larger specialist settings, but improve support for pupils within mainstream schools. Zaraga ends with a call for a strategic plan, more resources and expertise from across the sector to be listened to. In Northern Ireland schools, already dealing with action short of strike by teachers from five teaching unions due to issues over pay, could now face further disruption. The BBC reports that there will be strike action on the 16th of November by members of Unison, Unite, the GMB and NIPSA, who, between them, represent thousands of non-teaching staff. These include bus drivers, school catering staff, classroom assistants and cleaners. The strike action is over the failure to reform pay and cuts to the overall education budget. BBC News Northern Ireland has been told that the action will mean that many, if not all, schools will have to close. Finally, a primary school in Birmingham made the local news after it introduced a small farm which includes alpacas, goats and chickens. In spring, it also houses lambs needing to be hand-reared after being rejected by their mothers. St Michael's C of E Primary School is in one of Birmingham's most deprived wards, but the farm was introduced to help encourage children and the wider community to engage more broadly. Nearby residents have also created an allotment which is used by the school and the community. Children take part in looking after the plants and animals, although scooping up the poop remains a weekly task for the school's head teacher. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. You're listening to the Friday Morning Break with John Gibbs. My guest this week, Dr Caroline Horton of Bishop Grostest University in Lincoln. Caroline is an expert in sleep science, and we are discussing sleep and the importance of dreaming for learning, cognition, and health. One of the things that's a fascinating word that came out from something I read of you, of, of something you've written, was the phrase, I think it was uh, hyper-association or hyper-associativity, That's where it. something goes on, particularly in REM sleep, uh, or generally in dreaming, where you are doing all sorts of imaginative and clever things. We talked earlier about bringing people from the past and putting them with people in the present, but even, even stranger sorts of metaphorical constructions mm. that we would say, where we wake up and go, where did that come from? Is that associated with problem solving? and intellectual kind of activity. In other words, that thing where you wake up in the morning and go, I know how to fix that shelf. Yes. <laughs> you've, somehow yes. Been, you've somehow been working on it at night. Yeah. Yes, we think so, though admittedly we don't know for sure yet. Um, so hyper-associativity is, um, it refers to that kind of recombination of things that we talked about earlier so if we think about our dreams comprising lots of different elements that have each come from different situations they are they've been hyper associated hyper associated in that they they wouldn't have been associated in everyday life so that's one element of hyper associativity and, and the other is um as you indicated it's this idea that when we're awake we have a kind of logical stream of consciousness where our thoughts may go from A to B and B to C. Whereas when we're asleep, it may be that our thoughts go from A to F. Um, and, and 
there's just a a kind of semantic connection that is much more free than when we are awake. Now, we think that this is theoretical. We've kind of seen it in dream reports. And we've also seen that REM sleep, the amount of REM sleep that we get, is highly predictive of problem solving ability creativity, um, insight. So there are all sorts of clever psychological tasks where people are um, kind of given these codes and they can't make sense of them in waking life. They go to sleep and suddenly they practice. Um, That we think is linked to hyper-associativity, but we don't yet have the experimental evidence that has linked it directly to dreaming. So Mm. this is where we think, okay, REM sleep and dreaming, we said earlier, they they co-relate, but they're not exactly the same thing. We don't know if that's exactly the same thing. My hunch is that dreams are the product of this hyper-associative cognition that's happening when we're asleep, during REM sleep predominantly, and dreams give rise to that. Um, So they they are kind of the conscious creation of, of that underlying cognitive function um either way you know it boils down to us needing a decent amount of REM sleep and sure you know if we want to think creatively (laughs) if we want to feel well rested and and have new ideas sleep's going to be the way to get it yes i I remember reading when i first read uh, the book of you know brave new world where they have these and my father i'm telling me oh you should read brave new world john because one day that's how we'll learn we'll have little camera little um, microphones under our pillows telling us yeah. about mathematical calculations and we'll wake up in the morning <laughs> knowing it. But what, yeah. really, what a real shame that didn't work at all. <laughs> but yeah, there's actually yeah. nothing in that. But it, but it's rather, I rather like the idea that even though you might be dreaming about walking across the planet on Mars or something or in outer space, you come back down and you can fix a shelf. There's some sort of metaphorical processing of a problem that you yeah. probably can't decode that you have when you wake up. I don't know. Yeah. And I I think you're right there. I mean, we like to be able to rationalize and explain things consciously and we can't because sometimes these ideas seem to come out of nowhere. Um, But nevertheless, maybe in the same way as when we were thinking of dreams being bizarre because they've taken on a, a new form because the, the the individual ingredients make sense, but they chemically create something new as an experience when they're in a dream. Um, we can't really make sense of that, but yet it still leaves us with something that's probably quite useful. So for sure, REM sleep is associated with, with creativity, new ideas. We don't think we can learn much when we're asleep <laughs> in Brave New World style, which is really unfortunate. Really? Because, you know, we, we want to learn more. And again, you know, we are surrounded by information. Too much, too much choice. Um, there's too many things all the time, 24-7 information streams. If we want them, it's hard to make sense of and it's overwhelming. So the idea that we could continue learning while we're offline is an appealing one but ultimately if we try and do that it disrupts our sleep um and that's then preventing us from having those perfect natural conditions in which our brain will sort things out you know brain's incredible it will self-organize um if if we create the conditions too and if we deprive our systems of those conditions then you know we end up not only tired but we are emotionally over responsive you know we respond to neutral stimuli as if it's threatening we see friends as if they're foes um and then uh, over a longer period of time it can get really quite profound and uh when we said earlier about you know we need that mental exercise and that emotional exercise if we deprive ourselves of that chronically then we have those experiences that are hallucinatory when we are awake. And, and that mm. that is psychosis. So we, we absolutely have to have those experiences in the safe conditions. Otherwise, you know, the, the health implications are quite serious. Have you come across or do you, does your research encompass things like the, the, the very uh, odd or extreme forms of dreaming that you were talking about where they have repeated dreams of waking up and being awake and going to work and then they wake up again, that sort of thing, or where they... Um, have a nightmare so awfully terrifying they're afraid to go to sleep. I mean, those kind yeah. of dreams that you really don't want to have. Yes, not nightmarish dreams or repeated yeah. dreams and so on. Or, or dreams they feel they can control. I mean, I am dreaming that I somehow, I know I'm dreaming and so on. Yeah. That, that, so, yes. But these things don't happen that 
often. No, um, thank goodness. <laughs> absolutely, thank goodness. I mean, for some people they do, of course. Uh, I will just mention one of my PhD students, if I may, Fiona Henrik, mm. who is based in Australia. She's a clinic- clinical psychologist and she's been working with um, war veterans with PTSD. And she's been really interested in um, whether nightmares can be adaptive uh, or whether there's something about nightmares that are not adaptive. And, and and essentially, when I was talking earlier about, you know, the the dreaming of something so traumatic that it's literal, um, that's when people are stuck in the processing loop and they're not able to sleep adequately to kind of break that um overwhelming wow. process down when they're able to sleep they can break it down and they can kind of process it uh, in a more fragmented way and in a way that's that's a bit more healthy it takes time that's the only work that i've been involved in in relation to nightmares um i, I tend to work just with what i would call normal dreams if there was such a yes. thing. but i think there are there is such a thing as normal dreams because i've asked people before i've had people approach me who say I have recurrent dreams and I have the same dream all the time. And I say, okay, well, that's really unusual because, you know, normally we would only dream of of something literally if it's really traumatic. Can you keep a diary for me? And they've kept a diary and what they think of as a repeated dream is not a repeated dream. There may be one or two elements that appear in dreams a couple of times a month, but actually they become so memorable that they're kind of disproportionately represented so I don't have much to do with that. The, the other thing I'll mention briefly, if I may, mm-hmm. is lucid dreaming. Uh, and you asked about uh, the experiences where people may be controlling their dreams. And, um, lucid dreaming is simply the experience of knowing that you're dreaming while you're dreaming. Uh, mm-hmm. Most of the time, we don't know that we're dreaming. We just accept what's happening as if it's sort of real uh, or, we, or we just don't question it, at least. Um, people are fascinated by lucid dreams. Um, mm-hmm. And if you've ever had one, you know, they were they're a really interesting and enjoyable and overwhelming sensation. However, some people have become so interested in trying to experience lucidity that, as usual, they're kind of disrupting their sleep in the process. <laughs> they're trying so hard to get to oh, a right. state of, of of lucidity that actually to be lucid is very akin to being awake. And that therefore they're preventing themselves from getting some of those deeper sleep stages that they really need. But I think the lure of it, that in part is because it's just a cool sensation. But the other part is, hey, if I could control what I'm doing, again, I could be really efficient. I could learn something new when I'm asleep. You know, I might not have time yes. to revise when I'm awake, but if I can read this book or if I can just, you know, shoot a few basketball hoops and then be better prepared for my big game tomorrow, that's a really efficient use of time. Um There is some limited evidence to show that you can train yourself to do something while lucid, but the amount of time Mm. it takes to train yourself to be lucid is quite inefficient if you just spent the time on the basketball (laughs) in the first place. Um, So it's fascinating, but my view is just leave sleep be, it will sort itself out. And that's the best conditions that we can give ourselves. (laughs) Yeah, I can absolutely get why people like uh, the idea of uh, lucid dreaming. I mean, whenever that sort of happened, I think, "Is is this a dream? I wake up. (laughs) <laughs> yes. That means I'm waking up. It's just yes. a dream I'm awake, you know. But yeah. I've heard of people say, oh, yes, I, I knew I was dreaming. I suppose it's because you might feel, well, it's almost like a superpower. I mean, I can, I'm in another world, yeah. unbounded by the constraints of, of you know, gravity or, <laughs> yeah. or reality. And I may be able to, to, to do, you know, to experience that world. That would be rather nice. It, it would be great. I mean, if I could enjoy a feast of cheese while asleep uh, and rather than yes. awake, that would be far better for me. But, um, but alas, <laughs> it's, it's yeah. not quite the same. Um, and, and I think we've just got that cultural association with sleep that it's a distractor. It takes us away from the really productive stuff. And that's a, that's a cultural thing that I think we need to challenge. Mm. Um, you know, if we just let sleep be, let's honour it. Let's recognise that actually when we're asleep, as I keep saying, you know, the brain is really yeah. active. Um, it, it's not, it's downtime in some respects, but it's just a refocusing of our mental energy. It's a focusing of our mental energy away from our immediate physical environment. But gosh, we know that we need that time away from that physical environment sometimes. Uh, otherwise, yeah. we're stressed and we're overwhelmed. So sleep grants us all of that restoration and, and mental reprieve um, and, and is wonderful. It should be the easiest job in the world to say, hey, let's get some more sleep. But unfortunately, Absolutely. it's it's a hard-fought campaign. And if, if that, what we, what we talk about here, and it's, 
sleep has something to do with creativity. Sleep has something to do with 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 solving problems and to some extent, but it certainly has something to do with dealing with memory and processing the experience of being human. <laughs> yes. I, 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 probably something you, yeah, I don't know, you, over the years, this may be possible and something you, what I suppose you wish you could do is to go back and interview people who were Victor- living in Victorian age or living in an age pre the overwhelming media intense yeah. world that we live in. We live in a world where dreams, you know, it's, it's, it's highly likely that someone living in, much before the 20th century, never, never couldn't picture what the king looked like because they'd never seen a seen the king. And now yeah. I can picture what it looks like. I've never been to New York, but I can walk the streets of New York in my imagination. You know, there's steam yeah. coming out of the vents, there's red, there's yellow taxis passing by because I've sort of seen that world in another yes. pseudo dream, which is the world created by media. So I wonder if that's leaking into our dreams. I mean, I must do, mustn't it? Really? We are, in other words, we live yeah. in a highly, a highly stimulated environment. Yeah, I, that's a really good point. Um, there was a study conducted um, 10, 15 years ago that looked at people who had lost their sight at different times. And, um, and you know, people who broadly had lost their sight for 50% of their lives, they'd, you know, 50% of their dreams were visual and the rest weren't. So, you know, again, there's a lot of common sense um, continuity about what we're dreaming of. Um, there were also some, uh, there was a study of people who um, grew up with black and white TV and uh, their dreams were largely in black and white um, compared to people who grew up with colour TV and their dreams were colourful. So that that kind of implies that the influence of the media is great. We now use virtual reality in some of our experiments. Uh, we get people to engage in virtual worlds that we can program and because they are so immersive and sensory perceptual we can sometimes influence dream content you know people are more likely to dream of something from a virtual reality experience and something that we've just asked them to watch on tv um but yeah it, either way the, these experiences in the media are our worlds and if we think again that dreams are made up of our memories our memories feature these so it, it mm. logically follows that we're going to dream of of whatever we're encountering whether it's virtual or not we don't often dream of typing or reading or writing though what we sometimes dream of is frustration associated with those things but not actually the act of typing or or um reading or writing they're probably quite cognitively demanding and maybe when we're asleep we just have resources directed elsewhere it's not very useful necessarily to spend time on those things when we're asleep so there are some patterns with um cognition and technology let's see what the next hundred years brings fascinating to interview older folk we're we're coming to an end now and just uh, a couple one last thought really is that if going back to something i asked earlier really is that the differences in effects of sleep you know as you get older and dreaming as you get older Young people, young'uns, <laughs> the youth. terribly old when I say that, youth, <laughs> they are altogether more exposed to th- things like virtual reality worlds and using their phones and looking at their phones before they go to sleep and so on. Is there any understanding that, that not only that might disrupt sleep, because don't, don't look at your phone in the middle of the night and so on, but changes the way they perceive themselves, changes the way they dream, in effect. It does, the, does the world hmm. of of TikTok and such and short-term, highly visual stimulus enter into their dreaming? That's a great question and one I can't answer. I don't know that. Uh, I suspect someone will be studying it somewhere. I don't know. I mean, I I guess I would probably query whether it's just the youth (laughs) that experience that. You know, these kind of um, very short videos, uh, you know, TikTok-like and related content, they're just becoming the norm everywhere. And and phone apps are designed to capture our attention and, and really reduce our attentional load. Um, so we're, we're all kind of engaging with so mm. many things mm. at the same time. I mean, if you look at, you know, 24-hour news channel now, compared to five years ago, there's so many things that, you know, subtitles at the bottom, there'll be another rolling headline thing, there'll be some a score of a sport thing in the corner. There's, there's, multiple channels of information simultaneously and it's too much you know and and so we tend to focus just on very small things at short for short amount of time Mm. um and i would say that's probably affecting cognition uh, across all ages and anyone who's subject to that kind of Mm. input 
um, may may well be dreaming differently, and maybe our demands of sleep are different because we've got even more to process. Uh, whether we're processing yeah. more than we used to, I don't know if we can ever actually objectively measure that. But that's uh, true. And but my simple solution is always the same, and that is sleep on it sleep. because it and that I suppose is something we can never know whether someone in the, in medieval England slept the sleep of calm and relaxed knowing that they were in their village and god was in his heaven and all was well and here we we open the television up and see that all the horrors of the world falling out into our into our minds particularly now uh so well thank you so much for that that was that was a fascinating discussion and uh so much more to understand about an area you know where we spend a third of our lives so caroline horton from bishop gostest university Thank you so much. Thank you very much. And so that brings to an end this episode of the Friday Morning Break with John Gibbs on Teachers Talk Radio. My guest this week once again was Dr. Caroline Horton from Bishop Grostest University in Lincoln. If you wish to find out more about her work and her research into sleep and dreaming, you can find it on the Bishop Grostes website or listen to her podcast The Sleep Science Pod which you can find on all the platforms where you can also find this podcast Thank you so much for listening Listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.